Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the takeout ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. Angie's list is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is. And it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Five, four, three, two, one. But who's counting, right? His name is Major. Oh, ladies and gentlemen. Please welcome Major Garrett. From the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's the takeout. This is a major achievement. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major Garrett. Yes, CBS. Yes, hi. Major Garrett. Major, that's nonsense. And you should know better. Is Major out of the doghouse? (laughs) The answer is yes. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We are at Riss, one of our favorite restaurants. I'm happy and proud to say it's now a James Beard semifinalist. We don't know exactly what's going to happen with that nomination, but very happy for the good people at Riss. They have been a collaborator with the show for many, many years. We're happy for them. So, folks, you know the show loves books. You know the show loves people who write brilliant books. We have an author who's written not one, not two, not three, but four brilliant books. His name is Jack Farrell. He and I are contemporaries and friends. We worked together some years ago at National Journal. We were actually desk mates. He survived that. I survived <laughs> that. Jack, it's great to see you. And it's wonderful to be here. Good to see you again. The books are Ted Kennedy, A Life, Richard Nixon, The Life. I like those compact, simple, memorable <laughs> titles. Tip O'Neill and the Democratic Century. Clarence Darrow, Attorney for the Damned. Jack, I want to ask you. Do you think there is a city in America more central to the politics of our country than Boston? Hmm. Well, you have to, if you start going back to the Adamses and the, uh, the revolution, uh, the abolitionist movement, um, progressive movement, I'm not sure that Boston was as important as Chicago was in the labor movement. Um, but uh, then definitely you have that amazing string of presidential candidates coming out in the, in the post-war eras. Yeah, that's uh, you know, Austin and Boston. Yeah, I mean, they, it seems to me going back to that origin story of America and then running through speakerships, significant players in almost every key debate, Boston is there. And the topic of one of your books, Edward M. Kennedy, a product of Boston, his family is a product of Boston, all of that that flows through, but not just through Kennedy, John Kerry, John McCormick, Michael Dukakis, Dukakis, um, and Boston and how you become a skilled local politician often is a springboard to becoming a successful national politician. That which you learn locally, you apply nationally. Yeah, Uh, as Tip said. Tip O'Neill said, uh, all politics is local. Um, part of that, I think, is that uh, I'm a New Yorker. Mm-hmm. Um, but you worked at the Boston Globe for many years. But I worked at the Globe for many years. So I saw the different ethnic mix in both cities. In New York, there's Puerto Ricans, there's blacks, there's Italians, there's Germans, there's Jews, there's the Irish. In Boston, there's only the old Brahmin uh, wasps mm-hmm. and the Irish immigrants. The Protestant hierarchy yep. and the Irish immigrants. And that, I think, put a lot of pressure um, on both sides to play politics very well because the Brahmins were, going, were gradually being overwhelmed by this tide of, of immigrants. For the Irish, it was the way to get 
sink their teeth into the new world, and for the Brahmins, it was a way to keep them out. And so politics was fought at a very high level and a very low level at the same time for many, many years. And I think that tradition goes on and on. Blood sport is not too strong a word. What? Blood sport. No, no. Um, and uh, um, uh, the Kennedys, I think, sort of fueled a new generation of that because in addition to the blood sport they also inspired i don't want to make it sound like it's right, all just you know a power grabbing but they also inspired you know younger generations of people like the michael dukakis and john Kerry's of the world who maintain the tradition mm-hmm. so the book ted kennedy a life richard nixon the life the nixon book a finalist for the pulitzer prize the ted kennedy book was long listed for the national book award very very well received i want to ask you a couple of questions about the connection between the two between prizes and no work? between nixon oh. and kennedy oh, okay. and the fine, kennedys fine. nixon of course runs for president in 1960 yep. loses to john f kennedy nixon's obsessed with edward m kennedy in 1968 and through his presidency what are some of the more fascinating components of that interaction through that period of time in american history uh, number one john kennedy and richard nixon both entered um the post-war congress the house representatives in 1946 and became good friends they both respected each other's um uh, depth of knowledge and especially in foreign affairs um and nixon in, in sort of had a, a an idolatry for for jack kennedy who was handsomer and slicker and had more um women uh, Dick Nixon had already gotten married to um, to Pat Nixon, who was the amazing revolution of my book on Nixon. I mean, what a wonderful, fantastic person she was. Um, but so that's number one is that they started out as good friends, and that made number two even more significant, which is that in 1960, Nixon is persuaded that the Kennedys stole the election from him, and it's a double betrayal because of that because he um, was good friends with the Kennedys and he thought that 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 uh, he deserved better. And that leads then to number three, which is that um, when Nixon becomes president of the United States, he is totally paranoid about um, Edward Kennedy and what the the lingering Kennedy mystique and the Kennedy mafioso um, and what they were going to do to him. And in a large extent, that can explain some of the decisions he made launching his his dirty tricks guys uh, in the Watergate scandal. So three big Big uh, instances. And I want to zero in on 1960 and that idea that the election possibly was stolen. There were those who were advocating for Richard Nixon to contest it. Yeah. Grand juries were impaneled to investigate. Uh, and there was evidence, far more evidence than there ever was in 2020. I've done a, quite a bit of reading on this. But Nixon didn't. Nixon said, no, look, for the betterment of the country, for the betterment of the Constitution, this is not a road I intend to go down, and I will not go, and I will suppress and reject any efforts to do this. But he still believed it? Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Uh, and I had Julie Nixon actually told me once that uh, he was never the same after 1960, and that there was a line there to what, to what happened, the tragedy, what happened in, in, in Watergate. Um, you know, looking back, I would say that you can make a very good argument um, that uh, Texas— was stolen, although the margin of votes was bigger there. Uh, Gino was here. He's brought our lunch. That's great. That's what happens here at Wrist. Uh, Chicken um, Milanese, my go-to. Everyone knows that. Uh, thank you very much. Thank Enjoy. you, Gino. Thank you. Um, uh, in Illinois, the margin was much closer, mm-hmm. but that was more thoroughly investigated and by a Republican um, uh, uh, state's attorney, uh, a little bit more dubious. But then you have to ask yourself, okay, you know, the first thing that the Kennedys did was put Ted Kennedy on a plane to go back to California and see about why, and this has great resonance in what's happened lately, why all of a sudden Kennedy's lead had disappeared in, in California. In, in, in California. And uh, the uh, historic answer, and probably the answer, is that the Republicans outgamed them in Southern California with the absentee ballots. Mm-hmm. But the pro-Nixon margin on the absentee ballots was twice as much as as the margin in the uh, regular election, which the popular vote, which Ken, which Kennedy uh, had won. So you um, you might have had all three of those states in a big right. nasty battle if it had continued. So there was some uncertainty there. But yeah, but having said all that, yes, Richard Nixon was absolutely noble in the way he um, conducted himself in a very 
um, testing and disappointing time. And, of course, as the sitting vice president, had to preside. And he had to preside, and he did so with great dignity. You can watch that um, mm-hmm. today. With, 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 somehow, Nixon, who had no sense of humor and was very bad at telling jokes, got through that with a very winning smile um, and a sincerity that did him a lot of good. People remembered that. Mm-hmm. That's a really important as, po- as opposed to 1962, when he lost the governorship right. of California. And so he you won't have Dick Nixon said, the car to kick around anymore. Right. right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Some of that grace and some of that um, forbearance in the face of defeat, somehow it slipped away. Yeah. <laughs> that happens in politics. Um, we're going to go to a break here in a second, Jack, but um, when you started your work on the Edward M. Kennedy biography, what were you most curious about finding? Major, I had covered the guy. You mm-hmm. had covered the guy. Um, he had such an outstanding and gigantic personality that, you know, you always say, well, what's the real guy like? Right. And I was, that's what I wanted to try to find out. And I had some suspicions because I had covered him in good times and bad times, but I was stunned, absolutely flabbergasted as I did the work at the picture of who the real Ted Kennedy was. He was not a confident Kennedy. He was a person who was plagued by self-doubt and self-sabotage. We will get to both self-doubt and self-sabotage when we come back. Jack Farrell's our guest. Risk is our host restaurant. Back for segment two of The Takeout in just one second. This podcast is supported by FedEx. FedEx offers fast delivery, more visibility, simple returns, and weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. population on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. With FedEx, you get picture-proof of delivery, ensuring you always know where your package is. Returns are simple with packageless and paperless returns. Plus, FedEx Ground is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. So, what are you waiting for? See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Jack Farrell is our guest. Rist is our host restaurant. We're going to talk about Ted Kennedy in the book, Ted Kennedy, A Life. We also talked a little bit about Richard Nixon, the book, Richard Nixon, The Life. I really love those compact titles. Well, you, Easy you know, for me to remember. Tip O'Neill in the Democratic Century. Right. And then it was Clarence Darrow, Attorney for the Dan. And then it was Richard Nixon, The Life. <laughs> By the time I get to the next one, it's just going to be, you know, like, Frank. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Uh, self-doubt and self-sabotage. Yeah. Um, he was the ninth uh, child of uh, absentee parents. And for all the uh, ability that Joseph Kennedy, the, the dad, had at manufacturing these Life magazine and uh, um, uh, early television um, photographs and, and film of the Kennedys at play, playing touch football, mm-hmm. this amazing, toothy, wonderful athletic family. Um, it was in many ways uh, a lie and that there was great um, uh, connection between the kids, but not so much between the parents and the kids. And by the time Ted came along and he was the ninth, um, you know, Rose says it in, in her diary is that, you know, it's kind of hard to go out there uh, on the ski slope and tell the ninth kid that he's doing a great job when you've done it for eight. And it's kind of hard to read those stories at night. Um, and so he was shipped away to boarding school at the age of seven and bounced around to like 13 mm-hmm. different schools before he finally entered um, uh, Harvard, where 
he flamed out and was after right. uh, a year and and was uh, ejected for a cheating scandal. Mm-hmm. So um, this is a guy who all along looked at these three older brothers he had, all of whom died young, at the moment of their greatest potential power, power. potential, yep. um, and um, and said to himself, "There's no way I can match these people." And he was doomed or blessed with the notion that he had to carry the the Kennedy banner on through mm-hmm. time, um, encountering many of the uh, disasters that would have befallen somebody like J- John Kennedy had he gone on and lived a longer life. But they all fell on Ted instead. So there's a great amount of sorrow. There's a great amount of inner torment, um, a great amount of unresolved grief, uh, all of which resulted in two things. One was a personal life, which was disastrous. But the other was using work as an anodyne. It was work, 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 work. If I work all the time, I can't be that bad a guy. And that gave him a tremendous amount of energy, which combined with other blessings that he had that we can talk about, made him the so-called lion of the Senate. Mm-hmm. And that uh, idea of working really hard and then playing really hard seems to me sewn into the Kennedy mystique. It is. I um, At one point, I wrote a story uh, after the there was a first great scandal, of course, was Chappaquiddick. The second was the Palm Beach rape trial of his nephew uh, in 1991. And I wrote a story at that point uh, as, a, as a reporter for the Boston Globe covering him, saying that he was like uh, a shark, a great white shark, mm-hmm. who always had to keep moving uh, because if sharks stop moving, they drown. Mm-hmm. And, I said, and I said, you know, he's like a great white shark, and if he ever stops moving, he's going to drown in grief and, and sorrow. And uh, he sent me a little note and uh, signed it with a little caricature of a shark, and he wrote Ted the Shark, which was, I think, the closest thing to a confirmation that he was ever going to give to me that it was on the right track then. Um, and I did not find that note until about halfway through my research on the book. I was going through my, old, my own old files, and there it was, and that gave me a, an impetus that this was the right direction I was on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And in the book, you have diaries that are telling about history that was not known until you came across them, correct? Yeah, two kinds of diaries. Uh, first are his own, uh, which are not, uh, th- which are very comprehensive, but the ones I managed to get a hold of um, were just fragments, segments that ha- were included by mistake um, in files in the National Archives. Um, but they're very, they're, they're very revealing. Um, at one point, he is, uh, for example, he's interviewing um, uh, Chief Justice Roberts, who's aspiring to become... Uh, Chief Justice of the United States. And in his diary, Kennedy is, remarks how frustrated he was trying to make a connection. Roberts had an Irish connection. Roberts had a Catholic connection. Kennedy really thought he could reach, reach across, and he, and he couldn't. He couldn't make that connection because Roberts is a very smart guy and was sort of reserved and didn't want to get into this. But at one point, finally, Ted Kennedy says to Justice Roberts, okay, you know, I see American history as a continuum, you know, Privileged white males, all white males, um, blacks, women, gay liberation. You can be on the side of increased liberty and freedom, or you can be uh, part of the counterattack, and that's going to be up to you. And there's no, Roberts does not answer that, but it sort of is the great leading question Mm -hmm. of, of today's Supreme Court. But it also indicates, I think, what Teddy thought his role in in political life, America's political history was, which Mm -hmm. was to maintain that continuum. The other, oh, I'm sorry, then the other diaries I got um, uh, were uh, uh, Arthur Schlesinger, who was the House historian in the John Kennedy White House, very close friends with Gene Kennedy Smith and uh, Steve Smith and and Ted Kennedy. Um, So Arthur shows up at uh, Hyannisport in the week after uh, Chappaquiddick, in which a young aide, Mary Jo Kopechny, drowned in Ted Kennedy's car. And... I think that there's very few people in America who don't know what happened, that, right. that Ted and Mary Jo went out for a, a drive probably to the beach um, uh, for whether romantic or just a consoling moment, um, we'll never know. Um, but, and then we suspect that Ted immediately realized what a disaster this was and tried to save his political career, which is something that he always insisted he didn't do. Now we have in these diaries, these Schlesinger diaries, um, him recounting what Ted Kennedy told his family in the hours after Chappaquiddick, which was, you know, I'd had three drinks. Um, all I could think about was, you know, what a screw-up 
I am and what this does to the family name and how am I going to tell her parents, my parents, my wife that this happened and that he resolved to try to cover it up as best he could in those hours. And part of that was leaving the poor girl in the in his car overnight, which is something that his mother never forgave him for. Right. Yeah. It is the part of Ted Kennedy's life I think any fair-minded person finds the most repellent. I use the word craven, um, and I think it's one of the longest um, entries in the uh, index, mm-hmm. and yet the... <laughs> criticism for the book has been that you know i didn't cut the guy's head off and put it on a spike on the city gates you know it was like i tried to i tried to i think biography has to be empathetic first of all mm-hmm. for no matter who your your character is whether it's richard nixon or ted kennedy it, it, this is not a political exercise where you're you know you're either building one of these guys up or tearing them down because it's meaning empathetic because team. if you're not you can't help to understand them and you have to try to understand them. i think people want but the, the only good reason for a biography is to, for people to understand the human condition and you really don't understand the right. human condition unless you, you you bring empathy to the subject and try to explain why he felt um, the way that he did whether it's Nixon um, or Kennedy I think mm-hmm. yeah. and of course Chappaquiddick became that which separated Ted Kennedy from the White House definitely and uh, it was you know it was a, justifiably uh, absolutely absolutely and uh, it was you know, what's amazing for political junkies is how the Kennedy people deluded themselves into thinking that it w- this was it not, wouldn't. you know, we're, we're talking about a time when there's 30,000 nuclear warheads pointed, you know, across the oceans at, you know, three different countries. And, um, and we're talking about putting somebody in the Oval Office who admitted in his mea culpa speech that he suffered from panic and terror and fear and disorientation and you know the obvious question is okay so you know mr president kennedy president ted there's 10,000 russian missiles you know crossing the north pole right now what do you do and that question was not put effectively um until he challenged uh, jimmy carter in 1979 and 80 and carter's team used that quite effectively and the, and the press you know this is the post watergate uh, press they're feeling a little bit beaten up as being, you know, uh, pro-Republican. They're going to say, well, we're going to treat Teddy as rigorously as we treated uh, Dick. And, uh, and, and he, you know, it was easily the reason why, why he lost. Now, there are other reasons, too. The Iranian hostage crisis yes, right. um, gave Carter the ability to play the Rose Garden strategy. Uh, to but this, uh, this scrappy upstart network known as CBS played a role in Ted <laughs> Kennedy's <laughs> life in yeah. 1979 and 1980 through uh, the good offices of one Roger Mudd. We're going to talk about that with Jack Farrell when we come back. I'm Major Garrett Riss, our host restaurant. Jack's going to get a chance to eat, I promise you, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Back for segment three in just one second. <laughs> Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. Jack Farrell's our guest. Let me tell you a little bit about the way he writes. Uh, He writes with clarity. He writes with great verve. He doesn't waste words. Uh, he really is a brilliant writer, and I love spending time with his books. So, Jack, I'm glad you're with us. In interviews, I can waste words. <laughs> but not, yeah, waste yeah. all the words you want here. On, exactly. on, on the page, I try not to. Exactly. Yeah. But um, with, a, with a person like Teddy Kennedy, 
whose life is so operatic, right? right. I mean, right. The, the the challenge is to you know is to be um, uh, Danish modern and just like whittle it down, whittle to, it down, yeah, whittle yeah, it yeah. down, and not be beguiled by the mystique and all the <laughs> other things. But let's go back to Roger Mudd, CBS, and this yep. upstart, scrappy little network, CBS, <laughs> in 1979. <laughs> Look, hey. ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know what I'm referring to, ironically, is that the concentrated power of American news media, particularly the broadcast networks was far and away greater then than it is now. We are fractionally as powerful as we were then. It's just a fact. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad fact. It's just a fact. And the power of broadcast television in that era was enormous. And it was concentrated, held by a very small number of people. Roger Mudd was a correspondent, uh, revered, justifiably revered. He's one of my heroes. And he talked to Ted Kennedy. Carry on with that story. Well, the interview is... Scheduled for Hyannisport, and this is about the presidential campaign. Yeah, this is in this is in uh, August of or early September of 1979. Everybody knows he's uh, a candidate. It hasn't been formally announced yet. That's not going to happen until um, November because he wants Jimmy Carter to come and dedicate the Kennedy Library to his brother um, in in Boston. Before he sticks a shiv in the back and says, yes, "I'm exactly. running against yeah, you." Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, well, but it was it was it was no surprise to anybody. And Carter was at the was way down in the depths at this point. Mm-hmm. This was before the Iranian hostage crisis gave him the, the opportunity to play um, the Rose Garden strategy and come roaring back on a tide of patriotic um, sympathy. sympathy. Right. right. Um, so Ted sits there, and one thing about Ted Kennedy is that he was so insecure about his own gifts that he was uh, constantly rehearsing, constantly uh, practicing before any big event. And inexplicably, for some reason, we can get to a very interesting theory as to why, um, he doesn't rehearse for this particular event. And Roger Mudd asks him a series of really softball questions, but, but, but also, you know, some questions like, um, as, you, as you mentioned during the break, um, you know, what's the status of your, of your marriage? Any politician who's thinking about running for president should have a state answer to that. And the answer is, well, um, I, uh, we have some times which are, um, well, you know, we hope that in the, well, I, I, you know, we just totally caught unprepared. So that's over. A flashing red light. Yeah. Things are really <laughs> bad. And all the terrible things you've heard about me or read about me in the gossip columns are probably true. Yeah, right, right. And I can't even come up with a, a plausible uh, way of denying it exactly. on my own yeah. behalf, yeah. on my own steam. Yep. So that's over. And uh, the second interview is scheduled for his office now in washington dc in washington dc teddy's got a coat and a tie on he's prepared he's rehearsed he's prepared he's rehearsed he's ready for roger mudd mudd comes in and whether wants to give him a break or not asks him the biggest softball in american political history why do you want to be president and ted kennedy goes well i'm uh, well, um, uh, this country, I, uh, you know, we have many resources and, um, uh, you know, and just bungles that question. Well, that immediately raises the question of, you know, was there what self... What the hell is going on? Well, uh, lots of people who loved him immediately said, this is self-sabotage. This is him. He doesn't want it. He's a, he's, he's Lighting himself on fire, metaphorically, on national yeah, television. Right. Yeah, and, and, that's a, and, and if you follow his career... The closer he gets to the white, to the Oval Office, the worse he performs, and the further away from it he is, the better he performs. Classically, the speech at the convention in 1980, right. where the "Dream Will Never Die" speech, he's lost. Right? right. This is you know he's, they lost the night before. Yep. So now he's not going to be president, and all of a sudden he's great. Which I think leads me to that unified theory you were suggesting a moment ago that this is really what it's about. He. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and it wasn't just me. I mean, this yeah. family intimates like Ellen Goodman and of the Boston Globe and uh, Anthony Lewis, the New York Times, both had c- columns about this immediately. Um, uh, Senator uh, Warren Rudman of, of New Hampshire watched that, you know, and picked up the phone and said, you know, what the hell is going on here? This is a guy who doesn't want to be president. Doesn't yeah, want to be yeah, president. Yeah. Fundamentally, fundamentally. Yeah. Um, Does not think that he can ever match up to those two Three Golden Brothers, but especially to to Jack and Bobby. Right. Do you have any idea, Jack Farrell, what kind of president he might have been? Ever wonder about that? Yeah, I think he would have been um, uh, capable. I think he certainly would have rallied. It would have been a great liberal presidency. He would have rallied um, um, the liberal cause. They still had a... uh, um, Presumably he would have beaten Ronald Reagan to get to the White House, and that... Um, they would still have a Democratic Congress. 
um, and that the, the great conservative revolution would not have happened. But, you know, the other great, the great political sin of his life, and to some extent Jimmy Carter's life, is how they let the personal become political, mm-hmm. or the political become the personal. These are two guys who could not make up, could not get together. Um, I think Teddy deserves the blame more than Carter because Kennedy knew that he wasn't going to win. And he should have folded his tent that spring, let Carter have the unifying convention. Uh, I think they, as everybody always did, they underestimated Ronald Reagan and thought this wouldn't matter. And it did matter. It mattered a lot. It mattered a lot. Yeah. I mean, one thing that could be said, um, fairly or unfairly, of President Carter uh, is that he inspired a lot of people to get involved in politics. The problem for the Democratic Party is most of them were conservative (laughs) Republicans. That's true. That was... uh, um, uh, I, I, you know, I'm one of them. I, I, I'm not a conservative Republican, but I, I look back at that vote for Reagan in 1980. It was like one, like one of the sh- a shining, proud moment of my yeah. of my elec- yeah, uh, you know, election yeah. booth life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, does it matter how formidable and successful Ted Kennedy was as a legislator? I think so. I mean, a lot of the thing. One of the great lessons of Ted Kennedy's legislative record is how you have to keep maintaining the fight. Because here's an, here's an example. After Watergate, Ted Kennedy, as he was so skilled at doing, reaches across the alley. He gets them the, the aisle. He gets the um, uh, minority leader, Hugh Scott of Pennsylvania, to go with him on a big campaign finance reform bill. The New York Times reports the passage of this bill as a bill that, believe it or not, will forever end the influence of big money in American politics, right? Front yeah. page of the New York Times. Doesn't, didn't age well, kids. <laughs> Did not age um, well. And over time, that bill has been whittled and riddled um, until it's, it's, you know, until right now you've got billionaires contributing hundreds of millions of dollars and we don't even know who they are that's, that are buying right. our, our elections. So that's an example of how you have to be careful when you rate a senator or a congressman because all these things um, um, can, can, can be weathered by, by time and by the opposition. Um, the Affordable Care Act, John McCain walking onto the on, onto the floor, is a great political moment that sort of summarizes that up. That said, Ted Kennedy, always with a Republican sponsor for this demon of the right, right, always managed to find somebody like Bob Dole, George W. Bush, Ronald Reagan, Orrin Hatch, Orrin Hatch, Richard Nixon, mm-hmm. um, John McCain, Alan Simpson. Uh, Howard Baker, you cannot name a Republican leader of the last uh, 25 years of the of the 20th century that did not put his name on a major monumental act of legislation with Ted Kennedy. Um, and some of them were like, uh, you know, they, they can bring you to tears. The, 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 like you said, the, uh, the friendship and the alliance with Orrin Hatch resulted in this amazing moment on the Senate floor. They're pushing for historic AIDS legislation mm-hmm. at the time of the AIDS crisis and Jesse Helm stands up and all he wants to do is blame the homosexuals for their right. own behavior this right. they brought this upon us and Orrin Hatch, Hatch stands up and gives you can see it on C-SPAN and it is worth finding and gives this amazing speech in which he says you know I cannot w- read what is in people's hearts there are good people and there are bad people but I know that this is a public health crisis and that these people deserve better than what this Congress has given them, and you know we're going to pass this bill and provide um, help for the for the AIDS epidemic and overcome in Jesse Helms' obstruction and, and overcome Jesse Helms. Yeah, Republican against Republican, mm-hmm. but you know the partner on that bill was that was a great partnership, Hatch and Kennedy. And uh, as I recall, there was one moment where uh, I I can't remember who said it to whom, but either Ted said it to Orrin or Orrin said it to Ted. I'll come to your state. And I'll, came for, I'll campaign for you or against you, whatever works best. <laughs> whatever works best. I think it, worked, it probably would have worked both ways if, if you think about Utah and Massachusetts. <laughs> but then they went on. They went on. And, and like the next year with Bob Dole, again, another they passed the Americans with Disabilities Act. Exactly. I mean, yes, just, exactly. you know, it's stunning what they could do reaching across the aisle and in ways that putting, are unimaginable uh, Putting today. heads, yeah. hearts, and pen together. Major Garrett is my name. Jack Farrell, that's his name. Riss is our restaurant. Segment four coming your way in just a second. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. 
Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. We've waited through Richard Nixon, Edward M. Kennedy, a lot of other parts and names and events in that era of American history. Let's do a little bit something different. You read about Clarence Darrow. Yes. Attorney for the Damned. Let's just spend eight or nine minutes with Clarence Darrow. Oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. Uh, The the most ignored of my books. Yeah. (laughs) Why was he an attorney for the Damned? Um, Darrow was a true small P populist and small L liberal um, in the years after the uh, Civil War as the... um, uh, the Gilded Age mm-hmm. came upon the United States. The great machinery of the Industrial Revolution transformed American economics, culture, and politics. Exactly. And squashed the little guy. Yep. And Clarence Darrow was a little guy. came from a small town, Ohio. And, and uh, it drove him crazy. And so he built a career, first as a labor lawyer, and then as a criminal defense lawyer, um, trying to represent the little guy, giving the little guy um, a... a a stake when the odds were against him. Henceforth, attorney for the damned. Mm-hmm. There's a movie about one aspect of his life. It's called Inherit the Wind. It's one of my favorite movies. Um, Spencer Tracy portrays Clarence Darrow. What do you think of that movie and the way that handles the Scopes trial? It's, um, uh, you know, we talked about Ch- Chappaquiddick. Yeah. Th- that movie is a very good movie about Chappaquiddick. The movie Chappaquiddick um, is a very good movie about the incident of Chappaquiddick. Um, and Inherit the Wind is a very good, uh, it's a little... Slightly over exaggerates. Right. It's a little, it's a little hyped, but not by Hollywood standards. No, and um, it's uh, it, it cops out a little bit at the end where Spencer Tracy throws Darwin and the Bible together in his suitcase. Darrow never would have done that. He never would have taken the Bible home. Um, uh, but uh, but no, it's an excellent, and that's what most people think of when they think of Clarence Darrow. Is, right, is the monkey trial. Tracy. Right, yes. yeah. right. Now, with the interesting thing, and I think we might have talked and about a, this. And a fascinating turn yeah. acting wise for Gene Kelly in that movie. Yes, not yes. a role you would ordinarily expect him to portray. And you almost exp- he played Mencken, yes. the, the ultimately cynical uh, journalist, and you almost expect him to be tap dancing, like you know. <laughs> I keep waiting. I keep waiting for him to break out in uh, song and dance. Right, right. Um, but yes, yeah, an, an excellent performance mm-hmm. too, because. Um, but you know, we talked a little bit about this before what we went on the air. Is the um, it really was the start of the culture. Mm-hmm. battle in America because what you had was the sophisticated city folks believing in things like uh, Einstein's theory of relativity and the folks out in the countryside and who were and yeah. evolution and evolution of course was the great turning point about uh, about that battle um, and I would say that the next big step in the culture battle was then um, Joe McCarthy and Richard mm-hmm. Nixon and the anti-communist movement in the right after World War II and that then leads us directly to where we are today Lesser known, but an important case in Clarence Darrow's life, Leopold and Loeb. Yeah. Thrill killers. And when, a, when, when that terminology was utterly alien to the American lexicon. Yes. And they were um, homosexuals. Um, they were rich. Um, they were of Jewish descent. And they took uh, a little 12-year-old kid off the streets and killed him just for the thrill of it, just to see if they could do it. And this was a case that nobody was ever going to save them from the gallows. And only Clarence Darrow, with a three-day closing argument, um, managed it. Or at least gave, created an atmosphere in the public mind that the judge would not have been immediately taken out and hanged himself um, if he gave them life imprisonment, which is what he did. Mm-hmm. He saved them from the gallows. He did. The thing about Clarence Darrow is that he doesn't get these any but any of these famous cases. He doesn't get them off free. They don't walk out. Right. But he saves them all from the death penalty. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, that movie is. I mean that. Uh, Another great movie. Yes. That, Compulsion. Yeah. Well, yes, and that that story is 
somewhat fictionalized in the Alfred Hitchcock movie Rope. Oh, yep, as well. Uh, elitists who think they're smarter than the uh, oh, and wreck around them, and they and, absolutely were, yes. absolutely were, yep. and that's that that's in keeping with Leopold. Yeah, Rope. evil, not people you'd want to have lunch with at, right. at Reese. Yep. No. <laughs> <laughs> uh, is is that somehow uh, a um, checkered part of Clarence Darrow's history? Taking up for um, I don't, suspects I, and criminals and ne'er do wells and thrill killers like that. Only at the very end. I think at the very end, after the great crash of the 1920s, he took a case in Hawaii, um, which was a uh, uh, revenge case uh, in which a bunch of um, uh, white sailors went out and uh, beat up and killed uh, a native Hawaiian who they accused of um, having raped a, a young white girl. Mm. And he took the um, uh, case, not of the native uh, Hawaiian, but of the uh, rich southern <clears throat> sailors. So in that case, and, he, and, and when asked about it, he was candid enough to say, I, I needed the money. And, mm. and, and it was a rich family, and I, and, and I did it. Um, so that's like the great blot on his record is that one. Um, but the, also the case that ended his career as a labor lawyer was a labor case uh, from a, a, a labor terrorist blew up the Los Angeles Times in Los Angeles. And uh, Darrow defended the two, this terrorist and his brother, who was a le- leading official in the labor movement, thinking that this was American industry, using this as, as a way to crack down on the, on, um, this is in the 1910s, mm-hmm. so um, on the then uh, still aborning um, uh, American labor movement. Um, and uh, the, the pressure was on him to such an extent that um, it is, it's been argued that he tried to bribe the jury. In my book, I come down with, the, with my judgment. It was that he did try to bribe the jury. Really? It's not accepted by everyone, but um, he was so desperate. So and, and, and the so way desperate he, for a win? For, not just for a win, just to save the, their lives, mm-hmm. um, which is what, what he did. They didn't walk. They, uh, he just saved they were them, convicted, saved but they them were, from the gallows. Yeah, right. Yeah. So is that the through line for him, saving people from death at the hands of the state? Yeah. I mean, he saw the state. He saw, he saw anything big as almost inherently um, evil. It's very hard to pin him down as a, a liberal. You certainly can't pin him down as a Republican or, or, a, a, Democrat, or a Democrat. Right. Although he did once try to get the Democratic nomination for, um, for the presidency. Um, but um, he was basically was a... a, a um, a libertarian in a way that doesn't really apply today when we have a libertarian party that is does, doesn't even believe in parking meters. But in, you know, in his day, um, to be libertarian meant that you believed in you believed in free love on one hand, and on the other hand, um, you believed that um, uh, the, the, the forces of industry were crushing the little guy. Look, um, I think there is something, and we'll end on this note, uh, comparable in the. Gilded Age, and what are we are now experiencing the digital age? It creates a great sense of anxiety and fear because this does look monstrous and scary. The implications of the industrial age and the digital age, and it leaves people unmoored. Definitely, most definitely. And Darrow was like, "I'm against this." Yes, and I think it's also the great. I mean, it's the great failure of the Democratic Party and the Tip O'Neill and the Ted Kennedy era as well. Was that they really came up with no solutions for globalization and the amazing shift in American. Uh, business from manufacturing to finance. No, no real answers. They they had palliatives, mm-hmm. like you know, um, and they weren't good enough. And then no. there was Donald Trump. Exactly. And we exactly. will end it yeah. there. Jack Farrell, great pleasure. Thank you, sir. My pleasure. Thanks to Riss for hosting us. Your takeout outtake is special. That's coming up next. Stay tuned. Okay, picture this: it's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome to your Takeout Outtake Especial. You know who I am. Major Garrett, always, every week. That's how it works. Gino, thank you so much for the coffee. Jack Farrell's our guest. Jack, you may or may not know this. Uh, we ask every single guest who sits down with us here at the Takeout Three. We like to call them threshold questions. Sure. You may not think they're threshold, but I do. <clears throat> uh, most influential book in your life and why? All-time favorite movie? And if you're on a long flight or a long drive, what kind of music, artist, or genre are you most likely <laughs> to listen to? Uh, okay, so first one was book. Um, all the influential. Kings, all the Kings Men. About? Um, I know the answer, but I want my audience uh, about to know. Huey Long, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but also about um, what about the the, the trade offs at the heart of politics, which is ends versus means. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you represent the little guy if if corruption is the only way that right. you can build a machine um, to do so? What is the cost of corruption, human and external? Uh, yeah, um, yeah, internal but, and yes, external. Yes, yeah, exactly. Fantastic book. I read it every oh every ten years or so. Mm-hmm. For writing, I read. Poetry. I especially read um, uh, William Butler Yeats mm. before I'm actually or in the process of writing. I want to get those rhythms in my head. Hard to get better than that. Yeah, really hard to get better than that. Um, do you find poetry um, relaxing or taxing? The kind of poetry I like, which is you know older and more um, traditional, um, I find relaxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, not all poetry is. Some po- it's like music. Some right. po- some music is 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 set there to agitate you, and right. others is to, to soothe you. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Uh, one of your favorite movies, or your all-time favorite movie, if you Chinatown. Again, a, a story. Movie. Again, a, a story great. of of corruption, corruption. and human nature. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, I don't think there's a um, uh, a bad note in it. No, um, I there also, really isn't. Also, love a little a little movie that you might that your, your listeners may have heard of called Local Hero. Hmm. Um, about a uh, oil company uh, executive who goes to a small town in Scotland to try to buy the oil rights to their to their land, um, and is so um, enchanted with small town life and th- these amazing characters that the directors and the actors draw um, that uh, he, he's challenged and has has to look at himself in the mirror and say, you know, what is my life all about? Mm-hmm. But it's a comedy. It's very very good. Very good. Movie, yeah. So about Chinatown, uh, someone you know well, Ron Brownstein, was on the show about his book, um, Rock Me on the Water. Terrific book. Yeah. Fantastic book about that culmination of the early 70s of creative energy in Los Angeles. Mentions Chinatown at great length. I recommend the movie, that book, and everything that Jack Farrell's ever written. Uh, Chinatown is one of the great movies of all time. Robert Towns, the screenwriter. That screenplay is used in most classes of a high end to teach the basics of screenwriting. Yeah. For all the right reasons, uh, what kind of music do you like? Uh, I'm sort of a um, uh, on the rock and roll side. I'm more on the um, on the roll side than the rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, <laughs> explain yourself, Jack Farrell. <laughs> um, right now, I re- I'm listening to a lot of the Avid Brothers, mm-hmm. which is my one claim to being with it and hip. Um, but we all need at least one. Uh, we went to see Los Lobos the other night. Okay, great. Uh, uh, Mexican American band from the eighties and nineties, touring yes, for Look fif- them up. touring for fifty years. Yeah. They're still out there, um, and uh, and they're not in the Hall of Fame. And need to be. We know why. Um, I need don't, to I be. Fix that. Yeah, absolutely. Cleveland. Um, you know, but, but really, I mean, one of the great moments of the last couple of years was watching that wonderful Peter Jackson uh, documentary on the Beatles making the movie Let It Be and, yes. and re- reminding how much their music, I love their music. So let me ask you, if you had to rank them in order, one to four, please rank for me the Beatles, the Stones, the Who, and Led Zeppelin. Uh, well, I'd put the Grateful Dead up there, too. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> oh, you've already failed. Uh, all right, whatever. All right. Uh, I think the Beatles have to be... One and the stones. The stones have to be two. Okay. Um, uh, and I think there's a whole bunch of people that could that you could put in there for, for number uh, three, three and four. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, but you wouldn't um, put necessarily the Who or Led Zeppelin there. Um, uh, you know, I listened to Tommy until I wore out the grooves, and uh, you know, I still probably um, I'm He's still clearly wondering, not a Led Zeppelin. Still fan, wondering clearly. what the what the lyrics are for Stairway to Heaven. <laughs> what exactly if there's does a bustle in your hedgerow. <laughs> Don't be alarmed now. It's just a sprinkling for the May Queen. Come on, what's your problem? Can you can you turn this on you? What would you? What would you? How would you rank them? 
Zeppelin. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I think I think and if and if and I won't go into this. So I've done it many times. I think they're the most influential through the continuation of rock and roll. Yes, they took American blues. In some cases, they stole from American blues without proper attribution. I always say that about Led Zeppelin. I never leave that out. But their sound and their orientation has been more inspirational to more drummers, more ah, right. guitar players, and has a longer run through Nirvana, through Nine Inch Nails, through so many other rock bands that have been successful on their own terms since then. I rate them number one. Then the Stones, then the Who, then the Beatles. I put the Beatles <laughs> fourth. I really do. Okay, well, we can uh, wrestle... <laughs> Off camera on that. <laughs> Jack Farrell, it's been a pleasure. This has been your Takeout Outtake Especial, folks. And a little bit of Major's musical waywardness. See you next week. <laughs> the Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Jake Rosen, and Ashley Armstrong. CBSN production by Eric Susanen. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Save on Cox Internet when you add Cox Mobile and get fiber-powered internet at home and unbeatable 5G reliability on the go. So whether you're playing a game at home yes, cool. or attending one live, no! you can do more without spending more. Learn how to save at cox.com internet. Cox Internet is connected to the premises via coaxial cable. Cox Mobile runs on the network with unbeatable 5G reliability as measured by Ookla LLC in the U.S. to H 2023. Results may vary, not an endorsement. Other restrictions apply. The Hargan women seem to have it all. From the outside looking in, we were blessed. My mom was amazing. But as detectives would soon learn, there was a lot going on inside the Hargan household. Ashley and I have been calling my mom and the house and Helen. No one's answering. 63-year-old Pamela Hargan gunned down in her own home. Her youngest daughter, Helen, lay dead upstairs. Patrol, when they arrived, assumed or thought that there might have been a murder-suicide. But for the detectives on the scene... There were things about the scene itself that were concerning to us on day one. Who would want to kill their mother and their little sister? There is no boogeyman here. It is exactly who we think it is. I'm Peter Vance Sant from 48 Hours. This is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, early and ad-free on Wondery Plus.